The snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The snake deceived me. And I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth 
to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. A few years ago, a colleague of mine bought a house which had a wonderful polished wooden floor. However, not was all as it seemed. The problem was that although the floor itself looked fine, there was a major problem with the joists, that's the beams on which the floor was constructed. The problem was that where those beams entered the wall on either side of the room, they had become damp and they had rotted. And so as a result, the floor wasn't really supported on anything at all. Now it seems to me that those rotted joists are an illustration of what many of us have done with the good news about Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't simply appear on earth in some random way. He came as part of God's carefully worked out plan to save us. And that plan really only makes sense when we realize that it starts in the first three chapters of the Bible and it finishes in the last three chapters of the Bible. Those six chapters are not optional extras. Rather, the first three chapters of Genesis and the last three chapters of Revelation are the same as where the floor joists fit into the wall. They secure the rest of the story. And if we allow them to become rotten, the whole account of Jesus Christ, his birth, death, and resurrection, ultimately becomes meaningless. You see, Genesis 1 and 2 are vital because they set the scene. They tell us that a loving God created everything, including men and women. They tell us that men and women were the pinnacle of God's creation, being made in his own image. Men and women were created together to rule over creation, the animals, the fish, the birds, and to work the land and to take care of it. And above all, they were there to have a loving relationship with God, their creator. Today's passage, Genesis 3, tells us that the devil exists. He is the implacable enemy of God, and he beguiled the first man and woman to believe what he said and to disbelieve and disobey God. And the result of that rebellion was the, against God was that death entered the world for the first time, and there was a separation between God and man. Those are the first three, the first secure at one end. The other end, very briefly, is Revelation 20, 21, and 22. That tells us of the destruction of the devil, who's thrown into hell to be tormented day and night forever. It tells us that all human beings are to be judged, those who have salvation through the blood of Jesus, whose names are in the book of life, are restored to the relationship with a loving God that was intended back at the beginning. And sadly, those who are not are also thrown into hell. These are the six chapters on which the rest of the Bible narrative rests. I don't know if you've noticed in our talks on Genesis 1, 2, and 3 so far... Much of those talks have included references 
to other parts of the Bible. Last week's talk, Wayne alone, included a number of such references. And this is because the writers of the later books in the Bible recognize the centrality of what is set out in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But the authors of the Bible are not the only people who recognize the centrality of those three chapters. The other person who recognizes the centrality of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is the devil. If he can get Christians to ignore these chapters, to feel embarrassed about them so they don't talk about them, never read them, and don't actually know they exist, he majorly undermines the gospel and evangelism. He rots the ends of the joists so that the bit in the middle is unsupported. Why does anybody need a saviour if there is no sin and no hell? What is the point of life if there is no loving God who made us for a relationship with him? And you know, I think the method the devil uses on us is exactly the same as the method he used on Eve. You can hear his mocking voice. To Eve he said, did God really say? And when he speaks to us, it's the same mocking voice. Surely you don't believe Genesis 1, 2, and 3, do you? These chapters are pure myth, written in an age of spook charming and superstition. You are much more sophisticated than that. And so we allow ourselves to be pushed off. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is precisely that. Mankind deciding that his own wisdom is better than God's and putting himself above God. God says, do not eat of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. But Adam and Eve decide that they know better. And their revolt against God's instructions constitutes the most cataclysmic event in history. It shatters the existing order and it creates enmity and destruction. And we see three things highlighted in today's passage. First of all, exactly as God had said, death then came into the world. Of course, this is the complete opposite of, to what the devil had said, but the devil is the father of lies. What God said was true. And it's important to note that there had been no death before Genesis 3. As Paul explained in his letter to the Christians in, in Corinth, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And Paul makes the point again in his letter to the Christians in Rome. He says, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men. There was no death before Genesis 3. Death is the consequence of mankind's rebellion against God. And at the end of our passage today, we see the first recorded deaths. Presumably some animals had to die so that Adam and Eve could be given garments of skin. And I wonder if you've ever stopped and asked yourselves, why is there death? Why do people die? 
We are so used to death that it probably never dawns upon us that it was not part of the original plan. In a later passage in his letter to the Christians in Rome, Paul refers to the whole of creation being subject to frustration and that in due course, creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So the first result of man's rebellion was death and decay came into creation, which had never been the original intention. Uh, One day a country vicar went to visit the Lord of the Manor. The Lord of the Manor lived in a large country house with a very spacious garden, beautifully set out and immaculately kept. And as the vicar rode his bicycle up the long drive, he came across Fred, the head gardener. Fred, said the vicar, what a beautiful garden you and the Lord have created together. Aye, vicar, says Fred, and you should have seen the mess it was in when he had it by himself. You see, Genesis chapter 2 tells us that God put Adam into the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And God created Eve to help Adam in this task. Humans were not created for a life of leisure and luxury, but to work together with God, and such work would be entirely satisfying. The second result of man's rebellion, which is flagged up in today's reading, is that the relationship of mankind and work is marred. Sometimes work is exciting and satisfying as it was intended to be but often it is back-breaking and frustrating slog. I suspect all of us who work know times when it is just painful toil and that with the sweat of our brow we struggle to get through the working day, working week, or whatever your period of work happens to be. So death came in, the relationship with work was marred, and the third area flagged up today is that relationships are fractured And an imbalance comes into the most vital relationship in society, that between husband and wife. Now, I thought it would be better if my wife, Jane, came and spoke to you about this aspect. So, darling, please will you come and read out this script that I've prepared for you. Start off by telling them a joke. If nothing immediately comes to mind, how about what does an elephant do in the rain? It gets wet. And what does an elephant do in Bristol? It gets soaking wet. Then go on and explain to them, no, I don't think so. I think that is just not the way I would do it. Charles's approach, as you will see, is often very different from mine. You see, God made men and women equal, but very different. And it's when we hold these differences together in loving tension that we create something very special. As Jesus himself explained, at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And the Creator said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. 
What Genesis 3 tells us is that the equality of that relationship was shattered. The man was to rule over the woman, but her desire was to be for him. Now that word desire doesn't only mean sexual desire, it also has a connotation of desiring to control. We shall see more of this when we look at Genesis 4 and see God saying to Cain, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. In Hebrew, the word for desires to have you is the same word as is used in your desire will be for your husband. So as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience, the relationship of equality between husband and wife becomes a power struggle. On the one hand, the husband ruling, and on the other hand, the wife desiring to control. We see the results of this in the broken relationships between men and women in the society around us. In this country, at this time, the effects of the fall are plain for all to see. Having turned our backs on our Christian heritage, we now suffer from one of the highest rates of divorce and relationship breakdown in Europe. Indeed, Jesus, when talking about divorce, said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. But this is not the end of the story. We see God says, as he curses the, the serpent, that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the offspring of the serpent. And the offspring of the woman is, of course, Jesus. The God who became man, born of the Virgin Mary, he is the one who, by his death on the cross, took on our sin, broke the curse, and disarmed the enemy. <clears throat> Whilst preparing this talk, it suddenly dawned on me that Jesus' death and resurrection not only broke the curse of sin and death, but it also restored what was intended from the beginning. So Christian marriage should reflect the harmony of Genesis 2, not the conflict of Genesis 3. In a Christian marriage, husband and wife should stand alongside one another, not over one another. At the end of this month, I shall be celebrating my uh, 40th birthday, 40 years since I was born again. <laughs> One of the first verses I ever learned was 1 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And at the, that time, God also impressed Galatians 5.1 on me. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. As a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion, the relationship between husband and wife was warped. The challenge for us, all of us, who know and love the Lord is to enter into and live in the fullness of our inheritance from Jesus Christ and to understand that our marriages can reflect Genesis 2, not Genesis 3. And this is not just for our sake, 
but for the sake of the broken, broken world we live in. If we model good, strong, equal relationships between husbands and wives with fun, functional, and fulfilling family lives, that will be attractive. It will provoke questions which will enable us to talk of the Jesus who has made such an incredible difference to every aspect of our lives. As I think many of you know, since the last of our children fled the nest over ten years ago, Jane and I have used the Bible in one year and read through the Bible in full every year since then. It's rather sweet, actually. We sit down and we read aloud alternate chapters to each other, and we've set out one year, one of us does the lead chapter, and then the next does the second, and then the following year we turn it round. Quite often these times result in discussions about Christian living. And as Jane practiced as a barrister for 25 years, you'll not be surprised to hear that these discussions can occasionally become a little bit heated. In a number of these discussions, I will put forward a point, and Jane would reply, but the Bible. Now, although I don't think I ever said it out loud, I would sometimes think, oh, stuff that part of the Bible. I didn't say it out loud because one of the rules of English law is that you cannot cherry-pick the parts you like out of a document. Let me give you an example. It's a simple agreement. Clause 1 says, you will transfer your car to me, and Clause 2 says, I will pay you £7,000 for it. The law will not allow me to cherry-pick out paragraph 1, you transfer your car to me, and ignore paragraph 2, that I've got to pay you £7,000 for it. And the same is true of the Bible. God inspired some 40 different authors over a period of 1,400 years to write the book. And although those authors ranged from royalty to shepherds, from administrators and senior civil servants to priests and fishermen, the message is the same throughout the book. And that message is first set out in our passage today. We're told that when God walked in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day, he called out, Adam, where are you? And that is really the primary message of the Bible. A loving creator God reaching out to mankind, his rebellious creatures, calling out, where are you? And as Jane and I have regularly read and reread the whole Bible, I've begun to realize how consistent it is in itself how its message is the same throughout. I'll give you just one example. God is described throughout the Bible as the creator, and we humans as his creatures. So I can't cherry-pick out the bits I like. Jesus dying on the cross for my salvation, oh, I like that. And eternal life with God, oh, I like that. And then reject the parts that I find more difficult. After all, God has decided that how mankind started shall be set out in the words that we find in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. No doubt if God had wanted the account to be presented differently, those chapters would have been different. And who am I to put myself in judgment over how God decided to set things out? After all, God was there at the very beginning, And we weren't. 
A few weeks after the start of the Second World War, in November 1939, the British Embassy in Oslo received a typed report uh, which detailed various secret German seat technical developments. The report was anonymous. It was just signed off at the end with the words, A German scientist who is on your side. The report was sent to London where it was named the Oslo Report, And it was initially dismissed as deliberate misinformation on the basis that it was too good to be true. For starters, it was considered that no one person could have known about the details of so many different projects. And added to that, some parts of the Oslo report were considered to be entirely fanciful. For example, it dealt with rocket projectiles with a diameter of nearly three feet. And that was considered to be impossible. As far as British scientists of the time were concerned, rockets had to be propelled by solid fuels such as cordite, which mandated a very strong casing. And they considered that to make a rocket of a diameter of larger than about three inches, let alone three feet, would have become so heavy that it simply wouldn't operate. So for very plausible and good reasons, the Oslo report was put on one side. But gradually, as the war progressed, it became apparent that what was set out in the Oslo report was remarkably accurate and correctly set out a significant number of German technical innovations. The British government scientist R.V. Jones later described it as probably the best single report received from any resource during the war. And he added that in the later stages of the war, whenever he had some time to spare, he would reread the Oslo report to see what might be coming next. Uh, After the war, it was discovered that it had actually been written by Hans Ferdinand Mayer, who was head of research at Siemens and was not a Nazi. Now, I tell you the story about the Oslo report because I personally find it helpful in my understanding of the Bible. You see, when British scientists realised that points 5, 6, 7 and 8 in the Oslo report were correct, it meant that points 1, 2 and 3, even though they initially looked implausible, were probably also correct. So with the Bible, there are parts where the evidence completely satisfies me that it's correct. For example, the evidence that Jesus existed, the evidence that he died on the cross, and above all the evidence that he rose from the dead, I find compelling. And I know from my reading of the Bible that the book is consistent. So as a result, I am reluctantly persuaded that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 must be accurate. Unless I put myself in judgment over those, uh, those chapters and say, oh, stuff that bit of the Bible... I have to accept its veracity. Now, we all have free will, and we are all totally free to work out our own worldview. But we need to recognize that a worldview that starts with lots of experimental creatures that die out and eventually develop into mankind is simply not compatible with the biblical worldview. The Bible tells us that everything that God created was good. Indeed, the Bible tells us that once God had finished creation, he found it was very good. 
there were no experimental prototypes that needed a few million years to advance into higher life forms. And secondly, as I've already pointed out, the biblical sequence is that man and woman are created before there is any death. There was no death before what is set out in Genesis chapter 3. And although I candidly struggle with parts of it, I am greatly attracted by the worldview presented by the Bible. It is, to me, more impressive than any other that I have come across. It speaks firstly of a loving creator. When mankind, which was the pinnacle of his creation, went astray, that loving creator devised a rescue plan so that mankind could be reunited with him. The worldview presented by the Bible gives each one of us a reason and a purpose for living, a hope to look forward to, and an assurance that no matter how much we have messed up, God loves us and calls out to us, Where are you?